Beth and I'm a psychological wellbeing practitioner from Newcastle. I just wanted to say the biggest thank you to the contributors of the Clinical Psychologist Collective book. I've enjoyed reading this so much and loved having an insight into the range of backgrounds and experiences people have prior to applying for the doctorate and it's been really interesting seeing the potential barriers to the application as well and how I can try and work around this. I really started to doubt myself and whether I was good enough to apply for the clinical psychology doctorate but this has really given me the confidence boost that I needed to give it a shot so the biggest thank you ever. Coming up on today's episode I talk to Dr Gurpreet Kaur who is a qualified clinical psychologist and EMDR practitioner. We are talking about so many different things uh, including who should be and could be being on social media as a psychologist, but also talking about her faith as a sick and what that means to her, how she sees the world. And we just generally have conversations about culture, faith, respect, dignity. It's such a great episode and I hope you'll find it so useful. If you're looking to become a psychologist, Welcome along to the Aspiring Psychologist podcast. I am Dr. Marianne Trent and I'm a qualified clinical psychologist. As you listen to this episode, we are in the middle of clinical application season for the Clearinghouse and also for the Educational Psychology Programme too. If you would welcome some additional help, guidance and support, please do check out the free compassionate Q&A sessions that I run across my socials, but there are also replays available that you can listen to or watch on Dr. Marianne Trent on my YouTube channel. And whilst you're there, please do like and subscribe, chuck a comment in. And if you really like an episode, please do consider sharing it to your network too. So one of the things that we will absolutely need to learn about in any psychology profession and in working with people generally is about faith and culture and how that might show up for them, what barriers and what opportunities that might create for them. And I had got chatting with my guest for today um, on social media and we'd, we'd started to have conversations along those lines. I hope you'll find this really interesting regardless of your own background and your own culture because there is so much to learn from speaking with others and learning about the way they see the world. I will look forward to catching up with you on the other side of this episode. Hi, I just want to welcome along my guest for today, Dr. Gurpreet Kaur. Gurpreet is a clinical psychologist and an EMDR practitioner. Hi, Gurpreet. Hi, Marianne. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for being here. Um, we first became aware of each other sort of on TikTok and LinkedIn, I think. Um, yeah. But I feel like, yeah, you've been on TikTok since I joined TikTok. So you've been like an omnipresent face. Um, <laughs> and that said, people should come and follow you because you're doing really well on there, much, much better than me. Um, but yeah, I really like, you know, the videos that you create and, and what you do on this. It's lovely to be able to spend some time with you 
kind of face-to-face in person. Thank you so much. And likewise, I really enjoy watching your content as well. And I really think it's important what you're doing, trying to talk to people who are at that space where it's probably a little bit scary and predictable. And I think it's really important to talk through, through some of the issues that are probably coming up for them. Thank you so much. It's so kind of you to stay. And just before we went on air, we were thinking about actually a change you've heard about um, on YouTube that means actually it's going to be hopefully easier to find content from qualified professionals because I'm not sure about you, but one of my bugbears is when people perhaps have just done a psychology degree or even read a psychology book and then call themselves a psychologist and then sometimes putting out quite dangerous information online. No, absolutely. And I think that's the reason we're out here, aren't we? Trying to get the information across to people. But no, I think there are changes on YouTube where they're having people who are actually accredited, um, qualified practitioners out there um, and and they're somehow labelling them as that as well. So I think it's a new update that we can all look out for. And hopefully they'll do that across most platforms as well, because I think that's really, really important. Yeah, that would be incredible. I think sometimes the tricky thing is, especially in journalism as well, is that if somebody's got the barefaced cheek to call themselves a psychologist then sometimes the qualifications are assumed and even even yeah. with a degree and even yeah. with a master's sometimes people will think well of course that's enough of course they're qualified but what we know is actually it's only a professional qualification that gets you mm. qualified it's so broad isn't it psychology is such a broad term then the amount of categories that come underneath that and then how to you know, qualify yourself in one of those areas, it's it's enormous. So no, actually, you really take that with a pinch of salt when somebody calls themselves a psychologist. Hmm. Gets your radar wagging, doesn't it? Like... It does, it does. <laughs> That's why I was happy you were on um, the, was it, was it, was it, was it, was it five, channel five? Doing your channel five. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Get more qualified psychologists out there. <laughs> Thank you so much. And to anybody who's like, I don't know what you mean. Um, I can currently be seen. So um, we're recording as episode two is about to go out um, on Channel 5 in Inheritance Wars, Who Gets the Money? So if you're watching watching or listening to this on replay, you should be able to probably watch episode one, two, three, maybe even four by the time it comes up. But I think I might be in each episode. So thank you so much for your kindness and support. So we weren't on here to talk about media. We weren't on here <laughs> to talk about um, social media followings and, you know, proper people being qualified um, across mm-hmm. these platforms. But what we really wanted to think a little bit about was you and your career and your faith and how that has been, you know, interwoven with psychology, how that's important for you and and some of that stuff, really. So could you tell us a little bit about your psychology history and career to date, please? It's a really broad question. I think where to start? Um, I started, you know, with the psychology route, I suppose, at A-level because that was my first insight into psychology and what it was. Went on to study it at degree level and then I went on to do a master's um, as well. And I wasn't really sure about what route I wanted to, to go down or what I wanted to do as a psychologist until really into my degree where this idea of clinical psychology opened up to me. We're talking about the late 1990s now, so it's a very long time ago. Um, And I didn't really know much about clinical psychology and what it was, but it sounded very interesting. So I started to find out a little bit more about it, went down the assistant route and, you know, very luckily I was able to get into a good course. And that's how kind of the process developed for me. 
but it wasn't a particularly easy one. I certainly wasn't those one of those psychologists who just applied and got on the first time or did one assistance post and that was my experience. I think it was quite a slog. Um, and when I think about it, I do think that some of maybe my factors related to my background. So parents were working class. I didn't have anyone that had gone to university around me. I didn't really know what this whole arena of clinical psychology was. There was certainly nothing like this that existed at that time. So it was hard to connect with people and find out about it. So it was really a process of just learning and figuring it out <laughs> along the way. Um, and uh, yeah, I ended up kind of getting into clinical psychology that way. Amazing. And what's your current specialism? Where do you work? What do you do? So I worked in the NHS from 2001. That was pre my qualification, um, really as assistant psychologist. And then all the way through up until around, I'd say, 2018, where I started to sidestep into private practice. And that's really just because mother of three kids, you know, trying to balance it all. The constraints of the NHS as well and feeling a little bit like I couldn't thrive there. So I started to sidestep into private practice in Surrey, where I'm based, uh, and I actually work online so I can see people from wherever. And I think throughout my career, I've I always felt that some of the models in the way we were taught, particularly during training, were were great. And I think they've all got their, you know, positive aspects to them, but some were quite limiting. Um, and I find that I found that personally that there was a lot more that needed to be spoken about with certain clients than was than we were being encouraged, encouraged to do maybe um, on the course. So I found my interest really in trauma and I felt that that perspective enabled me to get a real good sense of a person's struggles and create a great formulation about what they were experiencing and why they were struggling. And so that's the area that I've started to, well, more recently, I've really started to specialise and focus in that. So that's why I went on to study um, the EMDR, became a practitioner in that. And quite interestingly, how I'm seeing trauma show up for people, especially from minority backgrounds, is as imposter syndrome. And so that's they're the kind of two areas that I'm very, very interested in. So the early experiences people have, how it impacts them growing up and then the impact of that as an adult in, in that sense of that imposter feeling that they have. So quite diverse background, but I'm very specialist now. Okay. Yeah. And I always try to save people a Google in case they don't know what something is. Could Absolutely. you tell us a bit more about what imposter syndrome is and how it might show up for people? So imposter syndrome was a term that was developed in 1978. It was actually by psychologists who found that there was a group of women who, despite their high achievements, despite how good they were at everything, they just felt like they were not good enough. They felt like their success was not their own to own. Um, and they felt like their, their strengths were just, you know, they, they kind of put themselves down a little bit. And so that's how it is today. It's people who are perfectionists. It's people who fear failure. It's people who have that constant need to, to, to feel like they have to do better, despite putting a lot of work into it and maybe sometimes overwork with that as well. But it's inherently that sense of not being good enough. And I think that shows up for a lot of people. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the systems that people work in and the organizations actually encourage that sense of overwork overperform be a perfectionist because that's what we want and that's will get you the rewards so it's a system systemic issue I think as well as a personal one unfortunately yeah I don't know what your experience of 
parenting children in modern schools is but it very much for me seems that they're trying to give more attention to everybody regardless of ability levels and trying to make sure that everybody is not always the same children that get you know certificates mm. and awards and praise and it's not you know it's not just the children that are struggling that are getting the attention so even mm. during so I think we've got um, our youngest children in the same school year but the SATs happened last year and mm. they were giving everybody um, extra tuition in, in our school year um, so that everybody could do better rather than just you know, just specific children. Um, and I think there's obviously a, a COVID fallout here in terms of our children and, and what they've been through for their early education. But for me, it feels, and because I was a governor for two years as well, a parent governor, it feels like they're really trying to do what they can to make everybody feel worthwhile. And, you know, what we go through working with people with trauma is that, you know, sometimes school might be a safe place and they try to really like it's probably school dependent but really holistically we meet the needs of a child and so yeah. I do hope that that in time things may you know even our emotional literacy and our ability to talk about our feelings may be better than for my age group I think and certainly yeah. the way we raise our boys you know I think schools are being much more mindful and certainly with all the gender stuff that's going on currently very much more mindful about things not just being for boys mm. and not just being for girls and that boys don't need to be tough and mm. not cry and brave and mm. yeah I think it's very interesting having even you know I'm 42 even reflecting on the way that I was schooled and what my experience of watching others be schooled was to now mm. what's your take on all of that Capri? it's all very different now and I do think there is much more emphasis on the child's well-being you see you're seeing a lot more focus on that I, I my concern is that I well I think it's great in that it's sowing seeds it's sowing seeds that maybe our generation didn't have in our school's you know experience I do get concerned actually if it's not mirrored at home or if, or if children don't experience that sense of safety or all that kind of language around <laughs> being able to express themselves or emotional vulnerability it's still going to create a disparity isn't it between what someone's hearing at school and what someone's experiencing at home so unfortunately I just think it's more of a systemic issue I think the schools are doing what they can do which is great but again it's only a very small part essentially I know when we're at school we feel like it's forever but really it's such a small part of a person's lifetime isn't it and then if then they fall into a career that actually demands very, very high standards of them for them to be just okay or on par with other people. I think that's where the damage can happen because it can really fuel some of those earlier negative core beliefs if they've been picked up along the way in, yeah, in situations that may be a bit more adverse. And so, yeah, no, I think schools are doing what they can. I just think there's a lot more that can be done. And I do think that there's more opportunity for people to learn with for example, us being open therapists on social media, there's a lot more information out there in terms of mental health, mental well-being, mindset work, all of this stuff. And I think companies are getting a lot more into this as well. So they're recruiting a lot more people to come and talk. But I, I think it's that part where people are giving themselves the permission to think that actually this applies to me. Let me sit and figure out my beliefs. Let me think about actually what are any barriers that I have? What are my blocks? 
what are my pain points that I need to probably do some work on so it's it's a kind of a mixed bag isn't it yeah and I think what you're describing so nicely is is the work that you and Dr Claire Plumley and of course Dr Julie Smith have done is is de-shaming you know what people are going through and knowing that actually it's not my fault the way I'm feeling and you know the things that can be done and I don't deserve to suffer I don't need to suffer and to have some confidence that that can change Mm, that's really powerful that's absolutely it there's a really nice hashtag that's you make sense on uh instagram i can't remember the therapist that had that but i thought that that's it because we're told so often or we're made to feel so often that there's something wrong with us that because we don't fit in it's because of us or because we can't perform in the same way it's because of us and i think it, that's it it's if you can understand your life story your life circumstances the situation that you were born in the cards you've been dealt with then it just gives you so much more grounding in who you are and acceptance hopefully to move forward from that point rather than some version of yourself that you think should exist based on some external definition of what a person like you should be like i think it's, it's just a marrying up of all of those things really isn't it it is and i honestly i just i just feel like we've got the best job in the world like <laughs> I just I love how I've been able to learn and grow and develop. And um, I remember when I was in my probably mid 20s and I was in a job working for a local council and I just thought, oh, this is it. I'm like, I'm not going to make any more friends. I'm not going to have any more like big opportunities oh <laughs> this is it oh and then soon after that I then got a paid assistant post and had a big expansion of friends and then you know yeah. regular supervision and being able to grow and learn and shape and develop and all of the supervisors I've had along my journey have really helped have a look at myself and my mm. impact on my clients and mm. you know Eve, I don't know about you but every supervision session I have I learn something more about myself or ways to help clients. And it's like, yeah. it's so invigorating. It's not stagnating at all. It's an amazing career. And actually, I think that that whole personal professional development bit that we've, we're told from day one is so crucial. It's so very, very important. And giving yourself the permission to actually be able to learn this stuff for you you know, not just learn for your clients or not just learn because your supervisor suggested that this is important for you to learn and pass all the course requirements. I think just to be able to benefit from that ourselves and to take that on board, I think that's a really crucial part. And actually that part I feel really sits well with um, myself as a Sikh, as a person who comes from Sikhi, which is a religion that is, it's, it's a way of life that is fairly young compared to some of the other major major religion, religions. Um, in that the word sick actually means learner and so to be able to give myself that permission with my job and what I do to be able to actually just learn and soak up all of this information for myself to keep learning and to keep understanding what are the new models what are the new theories I love it it's 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 a bit strange sometimes I don't know if you feel this but it's quite surreal to be able to have that permission to be able to do that with my job it's it's a it's a privilege it really is it is, and I'm glad you brought up your religion there because I was wondering how how that is impacted on you and the way that you see the world and your clients. And I wonder if I've made a horrendous faux pas all of my life because you've just pronounced it sick 
and I've always called it Sikh and Sikhism. Have I been doing that wrong all the time? <laughs> it's never, I don't think it's the right or wrong. I'm not here to tell anybody. You know, I'm just a, a glad that you're aware of it because it's actually one of the fifth biggest religions, if you like, but it's very, there's not much known about it, I think. So you can, we say Sikh because that's the way we pronounce it. That's just our, our way of verbalising it. Sikh is fine, but if you would like to go forward saying Sikh, you know, that's great. It comes from Gursikh because our religion is based on the idea that we had some gurus, you know, showing us the way, if you like. We had 10 gurus. And so if we are following this way and this faith, then we become a Sikh of them. So we become a Gursikh. Um, but no, don't think that you've made some big error or anything like that. It's it's a learning process. And again, all we can do is just keep learning, isn't it, about each other's cultures, religions, perspectives. And I think it's just nice to be able to bring this in so casually, actually, into this conversation. Because there have been parts, I suppose, of my career where I've not been so comfortable to actually bring in who I am. Um, so it's just nice to be at a point where this is a fluid thing that can now come into conversations. Yeah, and I, you know what I love about our profession as well is that we get a chance to work with people from you know either as colleagues or clients or both from such a variety of backgrounds. I remember when I just started in a Heart of Birmingham um, service when I was just qualified, and I was given a load of little books um, that are given to children about different religions, and the first one I picked up was Rastafarianism, mm. and actually until then, until the age of what was I thirty. 29 30 or something like that. I think I might have been 30 I hadn't realized Rastafarianism was actually a religion I just yeah. thought it was like a, a sort of Bob Marley way of being I didn't you know I didn't realize that that mm. was actually a religion a way of life and um you know I think it's incredible isn't it like what we can learn and how we can understand the way that others might see the world yeah, absolutely. But that's a crucial part of what we do. And I think as an effective clinical psychologist, I think that's the bit that makes the difference. So I think there's there's a tendency when we're very early on in our career, very early on in our training to just try to do what we're told in terms of, you know, meet those assessment requirements, think about the intervention, think about the model the theory and all of that. But I think it's so important to really sit with a person's culture, whatever that is, and however that shows up for them rather than our definition of what that should be for them. And I think that's that's very, very powerful. And then that's the bit that can really create that relationship and that therapeutic uh, bond that can be very, very healing for a person. I, I can't remember the name of the paper or, or actually much about it, but I remember quite early on in our training, we were told that the most important part of uh, a successful therapeutic intervention is actually based on the, the relationship between you and the therapist rather than the model rather than, than than the theory or anything else that you do and I thought that's that's really powerful like why is that not emphasized more I wonder if that's Rogers was it Carl Rogers and his kind of relationshipy type stuff he's certainly <laughs> spoken about that but it might not have been the one that you're thinking I think of. it was a specific paper and they did like a diagram and I should I should try and find what that was but it was a quite a large percentage of it, it was actually based on the therapeutic relationship which is process based isn't it and I think that can be emphasised by actually sitting with and trying to understand who is this person in front of me? What's their relationship to their world, their environment, their culture, their spirituality, their race, everything that actually people probably don't ask them much about. That probably they may not sit with much, that maybe they're they're walking around just with, you know, their, I suppose, assumed versions of what they think it is rather than sitting with it and actually thinking about it separately 
from a different perspective. So I think that's really, really powerful. Hmm. So, you know, I think that anyone who is sick who's listening to this will feel excited that we're having this conversation, but probably the majority of people listening will be thinking, well, what is sickism? And how might my clients who are sick um, be viewing the world or what, you know, what, what cultural constraints and, you know, opportunities for them to flourish have they got and whilst we can't pigeonhole people sometimes it's useful to even you know even things like for Judaism um you know you might not want to make plans with them on a Friday evening because they might have plans you know what Mm. might we be able to learn or think about how to be inclusive and understand someone who's who's sick so I think it's a tough question to answer in a way because there are I don't think there are set things that might necessarily like you could refer to in that way to say oh connect with this or connect with that but actually one example that's coming to mind is I had a trainee on my course ask me because he was feeling quite a block with a, an elderly sick gentleman he was working with who had depression and um, we spoke about something that's quite important in our faith which is sangha which is community and actually con- connect, finding a way to connect with his sangha again at his local gudwara and which is the place of worship and actually, such a simple intervention for that elderly sick man to hear this young white British, you know, professional to suggest, actually, have you got any sangat? Can you connect with your sangat? It was quite transforming for him. And apparently that was that in itself was such a small thing, but it had a powerful impact on him because it somehow reminded him of actually a key tenant, which is actually we do need sangat around us. We do need sangat who are inspiring. We do need people who can uplift us. And we do need to feel that sense of connection as human beings. So I think that's really, really important. Spirituality is obviously a very, very important part of Sikhi. And that's going to look different to everybody. Not coming in with any assumptions, I think, about what that looks like for people is going to be an important aspect. But it can look like actually, you know, some kind of meditation, some kind of prayer some kind of singing through what we call kirtan or listening to kirtan which is religious songs and I think that's that can be quite an important discussion to have with people because I think with any faith or with any practice there can be some quite heavy connotations about what they should be doing and what they should be practicing or how they should be doing that and that in itself can become quite burdensome for people so I think trying to allow a person to connect with any aspect in a way that feels more meaningful to them is the discussion that probably needs to be had with that person rather than what they should be doing. It really comes back to that CBT approach, doesn't it? To try to take away any of the heaviness, to try to neutralise the thoughts and try to really reconnect your values to what your understanding of your practice is. So I think that's that's essentially really, really an important part of it. Thank you. Um, and do all six cover their hair? That might sound like a really basic question, but um, no, I've certainly got friends who don't. Um, and mm-hmm. but you, but you you do. Could you guide us through a little bit along that those lines, please? But absolutely not. You'll get people who who cut their hair, who shave their kind of beards, because traditional Sikh men keep their beards, and we keep our hair. That's really an important part of Sikhi. Um, but it, again, it depends on that person's connection to their religion. So I think that's an important thing to talk about just because somebody looks a certain way we cannot make any inference about what their level of connection to their religion is or their faith or their way of life so it always comes back to that one-to-one discussion with that person um, in terms of what meaning it has to them absolutely it's how does that matter to you how does that show up for you and thinking about the messages that you've been given from your own family and I know when I was working in Heart of Birmingham 
um, there was lots of conflict actually with um, young people who had been raised, who'd been born in Birmingham, but mm. their um, their parents were first, you know, they, they were born elsewhere in different countries. And there was lots of conflict between kind of the East meets West of, of the usually young women wanting yeah. to grow up being Western, but mm. not wanting to alienate and upset their family. Mm. And it's really, mm. really tricky road to, to try and travel, I think. Mm. That's I think that's going to be a conflict for anybody, really, isn't it? Coming from a different culture where their parents maybe are first generation and they're born second generation here. And it's thinking about how to manoeuvre that. I th I th a lot of the blocks that I see, actually, when I'm thinking about some of the South Asian clients I see, because I think it is a really broad category of people who probably struggle with this. There always seems to be some block in communication in terms of actually what maybe the expectations are and the why and then connecting to the value is this important for you and if it isn't why why is it important for you so there seems to be a very big mismatch between parents the generation that came here what they understand about what's important versus children here and sometimes that's because actually the values may be not being lived you know if children don't see the, the adults actually living out their values there will be a sense of a disconnect that could be it could be due to numerous reasons couldn't it but I think parents coming here it was just such a stressful time you know, to come here and you know manual workers just working as many hours as they can to to give us that security um and I think that again that can cause some sense of kind of disconnection as well can't it there's that sense of it's it's not neglect but it's almost like an intentional neglect there isn't there and so a child is going to go looking elsewhere probably and they're going to go towards their friends, they're going to go towards their school, they're going to go towards kind of other sources that are more interesting for them. And so that disconnect can unfortunately start happening. And I think the repair for that or the, the way to try to overcome that is what we're trying to do as parents nowadays, I suppose, in our generation is talk, 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 explain, converse, have conversations, contemplate, which again is a very important part of Sikhi is this idea of vijar, where you're able to have discussions around all these concepts around all our experiences around the difficulties and sometimes unfortunately I think that is the bit that causes the block when that doesn't happen and then you just you're kind of clashing heads. Yeah I absolutely agree um, and I really want to make sure that that we're getting all of these terms right and so what I'm going to do is once we've got the transcript for this show is I'm going to send the little pieces with with words that are not native to me to you to make sure that we're spelling them right um, and perhaps we'll on socials that week we'll get like a little a little mm -hmm. thing going with what, what what it means and what it is and how you might hear that and represent you know recognize really, that when it really pops nice. up. Thank you mm, that's really powerful. even that in itself that's a really respectful thing for you to do so I appreciate that thank you. I just I'm always keen to learn and you know whenever I've worked with people whose first language is not English um, and we've had to have an interpreter mm. I've tried to get them to teach me how to say hello and how to say goodbye and I've written that in my diary and then when I see them I have yeah. I have used the hello and goodbye I wish it stayed in my head after we stopped work because I, I would know loads of different um different languages for hello and goodbye but it doesn't like literally once I discharge them it's just it's just gone but it matters doesn't it in that moment when you're trying to forge relationships and you're trying to make somebody feel really really safe to mm. to share you know really harrowing 
times in their lives it really is important it's a form of connection it's a form of being seen isn't it it's a sense that actually this person in front of me has enough respect to see a version of me that is important to me and I think that's that's the bit that I think can help really make a, a therapist um you know develop that bond with somebody that they're seeing to actually show that person that I see all of you and even though this part might be a tiny tiny part I recognize that this is really really important for you this goes for supervisors this goes for everybody really working with another person um it's just an effective form of communication I think it's, it's basic respect it's basic respect as well it is it's making me just so fondly reflect on some of the clients I have worked with across the years, actually, and those incredible bonds. And I think especially with the East Meets West stuff, sometimes mm. what I'm able to give them as a as a Western woman is to be compassionate, to be seen, to be heard in a way that's really, really de-shaming. You know, yeah. certainly when people have been perhaps held captive against their will in prison or in different situations abroad to then come here and kind of get my Western perspective on that to help them be more compassionate and realise it's not their fault. It's really, really powerful. I'm not suggesting that West is best at all, but sometimes I think it's more expected or or, or just kind of brushed under the carpet in in certain cultures and not even even nationally here in the UK as well but sometimes having someone just draw attention to that wasn't okay that Mm. that happened to you that must have been really really challenging can be so liberating for people I think that's huge that's a really important part of that therapeutic space isn't it and I think that in itself can cause a block for people coming because there can be I suppose there has to be some way when you're not in that therapeutic space there has to be some way to make sense of what you've experienced. And so, you know, in a lot of South Asian cultures, I don't know if you've seen it on social media, there are so many memes, there are so many reels on how, you know, the discipline was quite severe, but somehow they've made it into a comical experience. Um, And sharing that with friends, like I used to get hit with this, or I used to get hit with that. And I think that 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 is a way of making sense of the difficulties and the, the harsh discipline that a lot of people um, experience growing up it's not just South Asian culture you know this is quite prevalent I think for a lot of people when they're growing up so then to think about actually do I need therapy for that because yeah I know I'm a bit snappy I know I've got a bit of an anger issue here I know that I, I you know I'm short-tempered or whatever but do I need therapy for that no I'm okay because everyone else had this as well and that's a shared experience that I've got so that makes sense and I think so that way it, I think it causes a bit of a problem actually people kind of latch onto the meaning that they make of their adversity and that prevents them from then going into this space that can feel quite alien like what would that feel like for someone initially to sit with someone who's saying gosh that's harsh how are you how do you feel and then to open up what that could potentially feel like that I think that's a really really hard transition to make so even to get to therapy is such a hard very hard transition for a lot of people yeah I agree and even today this morning I was having a chat with someone and you know I'm not the sort of clinician that's gonna chat to you on the phone and then book you in my diary I was like you need to have a go away have a think think about whether you feel this is going to be a good fit for you and there's no timeline on this you know entering therapy is such an important decision and I hope it will be life-changing for you so I really want to make sure that you're 
comfortable with this decision and that you feel that now is the right time because sometimes clients just want to put a toe in the water make contact and then run away for a good yeah. six months you know because it's just not quite now it's just not they're not quite ready yeah yeah no absolutely I agree completely I mean it's making me think about an experience I did a call out on my social media because I do intensive work and I thought I had like three slots I wondered if you know anybody would want to do and had so many inquiries I had so many people interested but then to actually book that in to kind of sign up to that there was a real, real drop off because of that commitment. You know, it's so hard to actually kind of go and do the work. So a part of that is actually building yourself up prior to getting on with the process, not just jumping into that process. And actually thinking about the, obviously the people listening to this and the journey that they're on, that in itself is building them up, isn't it? For, to get ready to go onto the clinical psychology doctorate all of that learning, all of that preparing, listening to podcasts like this, listening to, to more people talk about their own experiences. I think that builds up some sense of, I don't really particularly like the word resilience, but there is an element of that there because I do think it's a tough process to go through. And I, I think you have to kind of really be very strong and firm in who you are and the why, like why are you doing it before you even start that doctorate? Because that brings with it a whole different kettle of fish, doesn't it? <laughs> It does. And, you know, the I think uh, resilience was a word that came up time and time again in the aspiring psychologist collective. Um, mm. And for me, it's almost can be a little bit damaging because sometimes there can be a tendency to, to use resilience, resilience just a bit like a sponge to soak up really loads of rubbish treatment from people. And I guess that's not what I mean. And I, I know that's not what you mean either. It's mm. about just keeping the goal in mind and because it took me three times to get on the clinical doctorate and it's not just clinical psychologists or aspiring ones who'll listen to this it's, it kind of tries to be inclusive but probably most people are, are looking at clinical but for me mm. it's if I if I'd quit after my second attempt then I wouldn't now be a clinical psychologist so there's something around that tenacity and resilience and determinism that has got me to where I am and of course maybe there's something about me that but of course my own privilege that's allowed me to be supported well enough just about well enough in some cases to get me there to feel safe enough to have food on the table and you know so there's absolutely conversations to be had around that as well um, but you do you know for the most part need to be able to keep going and keep going in a, in a way where you don't know mm. when there will be the finish line you imagine or hope for oh. so hard it's bringing it back to me it's a long process as well it's almost like a year isn't it I think the whole churn of it but it is a very hard process and but that's what I think what I mean that every time you go through it I think you you keep coming back to the why like why am I doing this what's the point can I do this can I keep going on and that in itself is a learning process because you keep growing with it. You know, I, I think it's it's it, it. I've known people who have tried. I think I, I met an assistant once who was on her eighth go. You know, she just wasn't stopping and she got on. You you eventually I think the system ends up working for you some way or another, as long as you keep learning with it. That's the most important part, isn't it? To just keep learning and growing with it rather than internalizing it, trying to think it's something about you making it about actually how you're a failure and all of those negative thoughts try and step away from that I think that's so massively important and just remind yourself this is a big system 
and you know eventually you just need to find your way to work it yeah absolutely and certainly the advice I would give is don't use your form from last year because in a in a I love the way you say churn it it does feel like a churn like it's oh here we go again um in the space of a year you should have changed like so much since you last wrote that form um Mm. and so don't look at it like look at last year's until you know you maybe a few weeks away from submitting in case you've missed a golden nugget that you did put in last year but for me I would say always start again because you're you know you're living a different life and even if you're in the same role you should be thinking differently about the work you're doing in the space of a year absolutely keep learning keep growing keep talking to people about their experiences keep asking questions that's the process it's just you are like a sponge because you just want to absorb everything to keep checking whether it's what you want to do to keep learning about the different areas of psychology that exist and the different ways of working and if you feel like you're hitting that wall then that's the point isn't it to step back and kind of reassess and maybe take a different step or a different action forward but keep learning so so important we don't stop learning and as kind of coming back to the earlier point that we said that's the benefit of cpd cpd that's the benefit of talking to people with networking liaising you just learn so much about how we can help people differently i think that's the great opportunity of this work it really is <laughs> we've got our placards out like, <laughs> but this is what i want for people so whoever they are whoever whatever discipline they want to go in even if it doesn't end up being a professionally qualified psychology discipline i want them to love what they're doing and where they're at and to know that that's possible that's key that's key i think people coming into this profession have core values don't they of compassion of kindness of wanting to connect with people and that's always got to feel good I think that's always got to be a guiding force for them so I agree I think it's just about keep doing what feels good keep doing what feels right it's not always going to be a great um, easy experience as you all know but I think as long as you can keep checking in with whether it's in line with your values with where you're up at that's the most important thing I love that and I feel like honestly I could talk to you all day (laughs) <laughs> um, but um, time is slightly limited because of the podcast could you give us maybe your top tip for reducing burnout um, for aspiring psychologists if that's okay oh gosh top tip I for me it always comes down to what I just said there with your values and being really connected to your current sense of identity and who you are and where you're at and I think a lot of people overstep that so we're so busy in our lives we're so busy with the doing and the trying to reach the place that we think we should be at that we don't often pause enough with where we're at and reflect enough on that process and how that feels for us so doing a lot more of that really sitting with and really really thinking about like where am I feeling internally what are my values and what is happening around me to connect me to those values or what is pulling me away from those values and what can I do to help myself feel more balanced with that. I think that's so, so crucial. So a lot of just the sitting with, the reflecting, and just kind of encompassing all of that within compassion, because regardless of where you're at, there are gonna be challenges. And if you can start to develop that compassionate voice within yourself, I think that's gonna be one of the most important and most powerful tools you will take forward. And I remember you saying, actually, Marianne, I listened to one of your earlier podcasts, I'd be interested to know if this statistic has changed. But you said the self-compassion one was the one that was downloaded the least. 
And I find that so interesting because that's the problem. We tend to overstep the stuff that's going to help us. So really, really do think about actually what are you doing to tool yourself up in a very kind way that connects you to your values? Really important. Um, the yeah, the compassion, I think, was one of the least three mm. downloaded episodes. So wow. what I will do is I will seamlessly look at the um, look at the stats. And then when I do the outro for this, I will give people the answer to that little riddle. But yeah, thank you. Mm. <laughs> thank you for highlighting that. But it's All so right. important, isn't it? And it's for me, it was the difference that made the difference. And I wish I'd picked up yeah. literature on self-compassion whilst I was an aspiring psychologist. Um, because I didn't discover it until I was qualified, until I was a mother of two, until my dad had died in yeah. 2008, I think it was. And so, you know, just think about what a gentle journey I could have had on myself had I had self-compassion in my world. That's perfect because it's a journey either way, isn't it? So is it going to be a brutal, harsh one or is it one? Is it going to be one that actually you can be quite compassionate with yourself about and actually just nurture yourself through because you will be growing and learning either way. So I suppose it's that choice point. That Ross Harris talks about and it's just deciding which way am I going to tackle this and how am I going to get myself through this because you will get through it one way or another. You will. Thank you so much for your kind words and your thoughtfulness and your time today in helping us learn more about about you and the way you see the world and your culture and your religion as well. Oh thank you so much Marion you're really easy to talk to and I love what you're doing here so absolutely if anyone has any questions just touch base reach out but no thank you for inviting me along. Oh and we haven't done the where can people connect with you so we should definitely do that where can people hang out and and, and meet you and get to know more about you and your work I'm so sorry about that. No no that's fine I'm on social media um at Dr Core Therapy so if you can you can access me uh Instagram TikTok LinkedIn Facebook at Dr Core Therapy. Lovely. And for anyone who is not watching that on YouTube, that is K-A-U-R. So doctor is D-R and then yeah. K-A-U-R therapy. And that's that's you across all of your platforms, is it? Oh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Love it. A bit of consistency. Thank you again for your time. And let me know if I can help with anything in future. But it's a pleasure to speak to you in person. Too. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Welcome back along. What an incredible conversation and what a pleasure it was to speak to Dr. Gurpreet Kaur. I hope you found it a really interesting listen. And in answer to the question about the compassion episode, it is episode number four. So it was way back there in the early days. It has since increased its popularity. It is now up there with um, in the top three pages of downloads um, but there are 10 pages so it's still only on page three so they absolutely could do with a little bit more airtime, I think for sure um, but yes yeah, not doing as badly as it was so maybe <laughs> me saying it was one of the least downloaded episodes has helped people please do remember that the clinical psychologist collective and the aspiring psychologist collective book are really really useful companions for you whatever stage of your career you're at there are links in my descriptions for both of those if you've got any ideas for future podcast episodes, please do let me know. And if you'd welcome some more advice, support and guidance, do consider the Aspiring Psychologist membership, which you can join from just £30 a month. And there's loads of great stuff in there about completing your form, 
about reflecting, about CBT, about formulation, and so many other useful bits. Thank you so much for listening. If you are watching on YouTube, like I said, please do subscribe. Um, please do drop me a comment. I will look forward to catching up with you for the next episode of the Aspiring Psychologist podcast, which will be available to you from Monday 6am. Thank you so much for being part of my world and be kind to yourselves. Take care. If you're looking to become a psychologist, then let this be your guide. With this podcast at your side, you'll be on your way to being qualified. It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast with Dr. Marianne Trent. Hello, my name is Veronica Kassova. I live in Edinburgh and I just graduated with a Master's in Psychology of Mental Health. Marion recommended me the Clinical Psychologist Collective when I was networking on LinkedIn and I must say I love it. Um, it is one of a kind. It's like a window into the lives of people on the path of becoming a psychologist. The stories are unique, honest and filled with a kind of intangible wisdom only personal storytelling can uncover. A common thread in the stories I valued most was to be compassionate not only with others, but with myself too. Also, not fixating on becoming a psychologist, but enjoying life, growth, and the final results will come as a byproduct. Marianne, thank you for taking the time to collate all the stories. The book is a true gem, and I think every aspiring psychologist should have a copy on their shelf. Thank you.